Amen. Well, uh, I am grateful to have the opportunity to open the Word before you this morning, and uh, just want to ask you to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'll actually be only reading verses 1 through 23. Uh, while you're turning there, I'll just let you know our, our senior pastor, Robert, is uh, wandering in the wilderness of East Tennessee with his son and on a backpacking trip, and so uh, I, think, I think he's uh, finishing up today, but that's why I'm here before you today. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 23. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, And are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, 
the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Pray with me. Father, I pray this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us what it is you want us to understand. And most importantly, Lord, this morning, point us to Christ, our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in complicated times. Uh, Whether you live in Chattanooga or Uganda or any other part of the world, we live in complicated times. Here in America, it used to be that if you went to church or if you were obedient to the scriptures, it was a normal thing to do. It was good. Now, more and more obedience to the scriptures is seen as foolish. That makes things complicated for us. And so in these complicated times, we must keep one question before us. Whose glory are we after? God's glory or our own glory? And this was an issue, as you've just heard, 3,000 years ago in the days of Saul and Samuel. And so 1 Samuel 15 has a lot to say to 21st century American believers who are seeking to obey during complicated times. And before we get to that application, we need to do some context. Our story today, is, as you've heard, is, is uh, about one of the famous ites in the Old Testament. You know there's a lot of ites in the Old Testament. Uh, and today we get to the Amalekites. Um, God ordered Saul to go and fight the amount to destroy, to, to devote to destruction the Amalekites. And just, just so we're clear, this is not going, this is not God going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, let's kill the Amalekites today. Okay, that's, that's not what this is about. This is not random. This is a, a purpose. There's a purpose behind this. Uh, the Amalekites were a thorn in Israel's side for hundreds of years. If you go all the way back to Exodus 17, Israel's coming out of Egypt, and they're wandering in Sinai, much like our pastor is currently wandering in East Tennessee. They're, they're wandering, they're on their way to the promised land, and the Amalekites just come up and ambush them for no good reason. In fact, this was kind of the M.O. of the Amalekites. They were like basically land pirates. Okay, They would just plunder people, and, and so... Israel, on their way to the promised land, uh, you know the, the famous scene where Moses raises his hands and Israel does well in battle. He lets his hands down and they do poorly. That's, that's what this is all about. Um, Israel ultimately wins the battle, but the Amalekites continue to plague Israel for years. And so this was, this was bad for the Amalekites because they didn't just attack Israel. This wasn't just a random, you know, they might have thought it was random. They might have thought it was just a, a normal attack, but... They probably didn't know who they were attacking, because this is, this is also an attack on God, essentially. 
Uh, Israel is on their way to the promised land, and, and God's plan for them was to be in this promised land and use that land as a base of operations to reach the nations, to extend the glory of God to the nations. That was always God's purpose, going all the way back to Genesis 1, was for the whole world to know the glory of God. And so this is part of that purpose. And so when, when Amalek attacks Israel, they're attacking God. And so that means they're in direct opposition to the glory of God. So we, get, we go to Deuteronomy 25, if you want to flip there. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. God says this, he says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the ways you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess... You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God calls for the the destruction of the Amalekites even as far back as Deuteronomy. Now you might wonder, how does this apply to a 21st century American Christian? Well, I want you to imagine for a second that you are Israel, which you are in a way. And imagine that the Amalekites are your sin. You know, sometimes sin can ambush us. Uh, we sin, and then we go, whoa, I did not see that coming. Okay, but, but usually we can see it coming, right? Um, we all have pet sins, sins that tend to plague us more than others. And, and for everybody, your, your pet sin might be a little different. Uh, but it can be anything. It can be anger. It can be a need to control. It can be sloth or gluttony. I mean, just go listen to our series on the seven deadly sins we did back in the summer, and you might find yours. But what happens when we just let that sin hang around? Well, as John Owen is famous for saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. When we let sin or when we let difficult temptations, things that we know we're going to struggle with, when we let that just hang around in our lives, the result can either be our destruction or, adding on to that, even generational destruction and dysfunction. If you will flip again with me, we're doing some flipping this morning, and I think that's okay because we're flipping through the Bible, but Esther 3, 1 through 6 Esther, as you may know, is, is set in Persia during the time of Judah's exile. And most scholars believe it was around uh, 400-ish B.C. And so we're talking four to five hundred years after Saul. Four to five hundred years after Saul. Keep that in mind as we read this. Esther 3, verses 1 through 6. After these things, King Azza, uh, uh, yeah, that guy, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, 
and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Did you catch what kind of ite Haman was? He's an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag. He is an Amalekite. And what we can see from this is that when we don't put our sin to death, when we just let it hang around, it does not just affect us. It can affect our great, to whatever degree, grandchildren. Sin can be generational. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Another passage that comes to mind is when Jesus says, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it in the fire. It's better for you to lose your hand than for you to go to hell. How do we put sin to death? Well, later in Colossians 3, Paul tells us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, goodness, meekness, patience, and above all, love. This is a command. It is is active. Just as the command to put sin to death is active, Paul is also telling us that we must actively pursue the things of God if we are to be active in putting our sin to death. We cannot sit back and expect that this stuff is just going to happen in our lives, that we're just by osmosis going to grow in Christ. One way to do this is to preach the gospel to yourself every day, especially when you're tempted. And when, I, when I'm tempted, I have to tell myself, Jesus is better, Jesus is more beautiful than anything that this sin can promise me. If I don't do that, that sin is going to get me. But to do this, to be able to preach the gospel to yourself, you have to know the gospel, which means we have to be in the Word, giving careful attention to the Word. And this also means, I think, we also need to be plugged in at our church. Sometimes it isn't enough to tell yourself the gospel. Sometimes we need others to preach it to us. We need others to come alongside us and encourage us. But but no one is going to know what you're going through if no one knows you. Plug into a small group. Plug into a men's ministry or the women. Go on the women's retreat. Get to know some people so you have some accountability, so that you have some help putting your sin to death. 
putting sin to death is an obedience. These things are not simple. We must depend on others. We must, of course, depend on God. And Saul was uncomfortable with dependence on God. But dependence on God was the chief requirement of the covenant king. When God said, go devote the Amalekites to destruction, this was a holy command. This was a command to make this an act of worship. This was the first duty of the covenant king, was to lead his people in worshiping God, in pursuing the glory of God. But as we know, this was something that was difficult for all of Israel. If you, if you know the book of Judges, you know the common refrain in that book is that in those days there, were, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they didn't worship God as king, They didn't really have anyone to lead them in worshiping God as king, and they didn't submit to his word. They submitted to their own word. But strangely, when we get to 1 Samuel uh, in in chapter 8, we find Israel now wants a king. Well, why? Why do they want a king? Is it because they want somebody to lead them in pursuing God's glory? They might have made it sound that way, but ultimately what they wanted was a king so that they could be like the nations around them. The, your ESV study Bible, if you have that big honking thing, there's a note in there and it says, Israel wanted to exchange their unique glory as the people of the incomparable God who had brought them up out of Egypt and was now protecting them for status in the world in order to be like all the nations. So Israel prioritized their glory over God's glory And so when we get to the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see this clear command from God to Saul to go attack and devote to destruction. Again, remember, this is, crazy as it sounds to our modern ears, this is an act of worship. Devote to destruction, Amalek. This is a crucial moment for Saul because he must decide whose king he is. Is he God's king? Is is he, not not God's king, but a, a king devoted to God, to leading the people in pursuing God? Or is he going to people please and oppose the glory of God? And the actions in this chapter, verses 8 through 9 especially, give us the answer because it says that Saul himself spares King Agag's life and Saul, along with the people, keep the best of the animals alive. The things that they were supposed to devote to the Lord in, a, in an act of worship, they keep for themselves. And did you notice what they destroy? Only the despised things. Guys, they they give the Lord the leftovers. Where, Where are we doing that? Are we devoting the best of our of what we have to the Lord and and giving him the leftovers? As a challenge to all of us. Later on, Saul blames this on the people. <laughs> he says, oh, they made me do it. I couldn't help it. I had to. It was, they were too strong. But even if that were true, it's still Saul's fault. He's the covenant king. He's tasked with leading the people in obedience. But he gave power to the people. That's something that I think we struggle with. 
makes our times complicated. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the Bible is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. It is absolute truth. It has absolute authority over our lives. We would do well to submit to God's word. It is the only thing that we can trust 100%. But there are so many other words out there looking to sway us. Aren't there? I mean, there are so many messages. Some will tell you, just listen to your heart. Be true to yourself. Believe in yourself. Do you know how silly that sounds? Or you'll hear what you believe is true for you. Or we fall prey to peer pressure. We just submit ourselves to the will of the people around us, thinking that maybe if I just do enough for them, they will accept me on some level. We live in a, in a society where obedience to God's word is more and more seen as slavery to a dogma that infringes upon human freedom. Or at best, it's a, a silly superstition. 2 Timothy 4.3, you may know that verse well. It says that there will be a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And that day is upon us. So many want teaching that affirms the pursuit of their glory and gives them an excuse not to pursue God's glory. They say obedience isn't really worth the trouble, especially when you just get to decide what's right for you. Why obey? We've got to decide if it's worth it or not. We must accept that obedience to God's word, pursuit of His glory, will cost us in this life. We will lose friends over this. We will receive not-so-pleasant labels over this. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not that high of a price to pay. But the reason this will happen is because the root of sin is opposition to the glory of God. And by extension, anyone who pursues the glory of God is also opposed. We will be rejected by many if we choose obedience to God. And we aren't willing to people please. But the alternative is rejection from God, which is where Saul ended up. But now you might wonder, why didn't God just give Saul another chance? Isn't he the God of grace? The God of second and third and millionth chances? If you look at verse 11, God says that Saul has turned back from following me. Now usually we describe repentance as as turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus Christ. It's a military term. It's like doing an about-face, turning towards your commander, your captain. But that's, a, that's actually a specialized use of the word. If you think about it, repentance can refer to turning from one thing to something else. And so, in a sense, Saul does repent here. He just repents in the opposite direction. He repents turning away from God and turning towards sin. Now you might think he lost his salvation or something, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think that Saul likely, likely was never a man after God's own heart. 
But this is a final, in a way, a final confirmation that at his core, Saul was, was about his glory and, and wanted nothing to do with God's glory. And this is never clearer than in verse 12. I just want you to imagine for a second Samuel's reaction as he hears this news in verse 12 that Saul has set up a monument to himself at Carmel. He's supposed to, remember, he's on a mission from God, as they say in the Blues Brothers. He's on a mission from God. And he's supposed to go and devote the Amalekites to destruction. This is, a, as much, again, as much as we have a hard time understanding that, this is worship. And yet, what does he do? He worships himself. Saul wants to make his own name great among the nations, and he cares nothing for extending the fame of the name of God. You know, this is a really embarrassing story, but it happened a long time ago. In high school, I really wanted to make a name for myself. I'm sure you don't know anything about that. That's probably just me, but, you know, we had senior superlatives. You know, you got best looking, and I was never considered for that one, but um, I, I thought maybe I could win one of those. If I if I won a senior superlative, and I got my picture in the yearbook, I would be popular. So I went on the campaign trail. I started asking people if they'd vote for me for personality plus. It's kind of ironic if you think about it. I asked as many people as I could to vote for me, and guess what? I won. People are probably like, okay, whatever. He says I should vote for you. Okay, that's fine. Sure. I don't really even know what personality plus means. So I won. I got a photo in the yearbook, which now sits on the shelf and collects dust. Monuments that we set up for ourselves will at best sit and collect dust for a few decades. We have all built monuments for our glory. We need to ask God to wreck those statues so we can be jars of clay for his glory, so that we can pursue something that has eternal value. Verse 17 has tremendous insight into this, into the motives behind this. God says that Saul sees himself as of little importance. It's kind of the gist of what that's saying. And that would explain the need to make monuments to himself. If he feels little if he feels unimportant, then of course he needs to build himself up. Man, how many of us feel that way? How many of us feel small or made to feel small by other people? And so we just grow more and more concerned by how little we feel, and so we spend more and more time glorifying ourselves, bragging about ourselves just to make ourselves feel better. When all the while, we're setting up these monuments to ourselves, which again, are going to collect dust and, and break and fall apart. We're setting these things up when all the while, as Ephesians 3.20 says, God can do abundantly more than all we ask or think through us. What could God do through you if you give him your life for his glory? If you are willing to be a monument for him instead of setting up monuments for yourself. Well, Saul refuses to do this. He 
In fact, he passes off his disobedience as, and his self-glorification as an attempt to appease God with external religion. He says, you know, I, I did all this for you, God. I know you said to do, the, do it this way, but man, I think this is a better way. Let me bring these things to you, uh, to Gilgal. I'll, we'll worship you there. Sure. There's a guy named uh, Ben Stewart. I got this off of Twitter. He says, filling, Saul was filling his life with distractions because he didn't want to deal honestly with God about his heart. And you know, for some people, and myself included, some people, this is excruciating to deal honestly with God about our hearts. We like to pretend that we're doing godly things so no one will catch on that our hearts are broken and vulnerable. But we don't understand that that is exactly where we need to be before God. We need to be broken and vulnerable before God. Because that is when we find the grace of God most amazing. And that is when God receives the most glory out of our lives. Well, what if you fail? What if you give in to temptation? What if you're pursuing God and you just screw up and you do the wrong thing? What if you really mess it up? Guys, God would so rather you fail in the attempt of genuine obedience than succeed in the attempt of self-glorification. Oh, he would delight in that so much more. Why? Because the first one, failing in the attempt of genuine obedience, leads you to God. And the second one, succeeding in the attempt of self-glorification, only leads you to you. And brothers and sisters, you cannot self-redeem. This is a key difference between Saul and David. David was a big scoundrel. (laughs) He, He did a lot of messing up. But he was genuinely repentant. He, when he messed up, he would turn back to God and he would plead with God and say, Create in me a clean heart. Renew my spirit. This pleases God. The mark of a Christian is not perfection. It is repentance after failed attempts at obedience. The Christian, we have got to, to keep before us the reason for our obedience. The only reason we can obey God at all is because Christ obeyed. John 4.34 is a verse you might know well where Jesus tells us his main fuel, his main motivation for everything he did. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Christ obeyed perfectly during complicated times. Do you think his time was any more complicated or, or any, well, it was more complicated than where we're living? I mean, think about it. He went out into the desert for 40 days and didn't eat, and then Satan tempted him. Satan came to him and tempted him, but he resisted, turned Satan away by the power of the word of God. He was called crazy by his own family. He was hated by the Jewish leaders, the powerful people of the day. He was betrayed by one of his friends. But Christ, as the true covenant king, never fell prey to people-pleasing. He was fueled by obedience to the Father. He was steadfast in obedience because he knew this was the way to glorify God and to redeem his people. But you know, this led to his rejection by his own people and then to his death. But in that, 
in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we find the beautiful exchange. He took our sin upon himself, and in exchange, we who have faith in him receive his righteousness, and we stand righteous before the Father. And so obedience is not a condition for acceptance by God. It is a fruit of being adopted by God. We can obey because even though we were once all like the Amalekites, Christ obeyed and by grace has given us hearts capable of obedience. And that's the good news. There is good news for Christians to spur us on to obedience to put our sin to death, to pursue God's glory. But there is also grace for the Amalekites and for the Sauls. Maybe you openly oppose God like the Amalekites. Maybe you don't even know why, you just do. In Christ, there is grace for you. Or maybe you're like Saul and you pretend not to oppose him, hiding behind a show of religion, but in your heart, you are about your glory. In Christ, there is grace for you. Christ became the object of God's wrath, the wrath that you and I deserve for opposing God, and he took that wrath upon himself on the cross. And as we've heard, he offers his righteousness to you in exchange. And to receive this, you don't need to offer sacrifices. We heard that from 1 Samuel, that Christ delights in obedience, not sacrifice. But you don't even need to, you don't need to do good deeds To earn this, you can't earn this. The Bible says, repent and believe. Believe in the true covenant king, Jesus Christ, who came not to devote the Amalekites to destruction, but to subject himself to destruction so that Amalekites and those like them might find salvation in him. Believe in Jesus, repent of your opposition to God, Turn away from pursuing your own glory and turn and run to God. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that there is grace for us, that you did not turn us away even though we opposed you, but that instead you sent your Son, Jesus to be our Savior. I pray, Father, that we would devote our lives to Him and to glorify Him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.